KC3, we are in the sixth week of the Unique series, and if you're new with us this morning, <clears throat> we're, we're walking through a series that's really all about you, and we're learning things about ourselves, but also in this series, because we're learning how each of us are wired, and we're all wired differently, we're learning things about the people we're connected with in relationships, and as a result, it's enhancing those relationships. So you're able to learn, I'm able to learn more about our spouses, we're able to learn more about our kids, or our parents, or our friends, because we're really walking through a, an ancient tool called the Enneagram uh, that was discovered hundreds of years ago, really developed by some Christian monks. It's founded and rooted in Scripture. And so it, with each of these nine different types of people that are in the Enneagram, nine different ways that you and I are wired, we're walking through a biblical story of someone that had that number. And so this morning we're talking about the sixes. And as we do that, there's going to be a phone number on the screen throughout the message. It's there in the middle. It'll be in the lower corner in just a moment. And so if you have questions during the message, you can text those in. And maybe it's about something we're talking about. Maybe it's questions about faith or about church, whatever. You can text those questions in. And tonight at some point this evening, I'll pop on Instagram and I'll answer the most common questions. I'll deal with as many as I can. And so feel free to text those during the message. Uh, in the Enneagram series this morning, we're talking about the sixes. Our youngest son, Ethan, is a six. And as I think about this, Angie, my bride, is a four. Kaylee, our oldest, is a one. Um, Ashley, our second, is a four, like her mom. Uh, Nate is a five. And this morning, we're dealing with the sixes. And we also have two son-in-laws, and one's, uh, I'm pretty sure, a seven. The other one's, I'm pretty sure, a nine. And so it kind of hits all over the place. I'm going to tell you what mine is when we get to it. We haven't gotten to it yet. And so I'm going to let you know that then. But this morning, the six is the loyalist. If you're a six, you are intensely loyal. It's how you're wired. It's who you are. Some other sixes in our cultures or sixes that maybe you're familiar with their names, Ellen DeGeneres, Eminem, and Marilyn Monroe, they were all sixes. But this morning, we're going to look at Scripture and look at one of my favorite people in all the Bible uh, who was a six. Matthew chapter 14 we're going to read a story about Peter, and we're going to walk through what this story means, but uh, something very unique had happened. The Bible says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Immediately indicates something had already happened. Immediately. So after that, something's about to happen. Well, what had happened was Jesus just fed over 5,000 people. Now, on the surface, that's like, wow, that's impressive because it was with a small lunch, and he multiplied that and fed a lot of people. But in that day, in that culture, about 90% of people alive were battling starvation. Food was not as, like, there was not a Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, Arby's, Hardee's, whatever your choice of soon death is, th there was not that available in that day. And so food was a rare commodity. So it wasn't just the fact that he fed thousands of people he fed some people that hadn't eaten in a while. So immediately after that, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Why did he do that? Maybe because he's thinking, okay, if I let you dismiss people, you're going to hang around, you're going to talk, you're going to waste a lot of time. Y'all get out of here because when I say it's over, it's over. People leave. I don't know exactly why Jesus did it, but a storm comes up as they're in the boat that we're going to read about in just a few moments. And it's terrifying. And if you're a six, one of the things you deal with is fear. But here's something you need to know. Jesus knew the storm would be coming. He knew they would be in the boat when the storm would come. And he knew he would take care of them. There's no storm that you and I will ever go into in life that takes God off guard. 
There's nothing we will ever face that God is shocked that we're in the middle of something that's terrifying. He's aware of every single opportunity, every single situation we walk through that is fearful, and he's always present and ready to be everything he needs to be as God for us in those moments. Notice verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Buffeted by the waves means it was being battered by the waves. So the disciples are in this boat, and they're there on the water, and these storms are coming up, the wind is blowing, the waves are buffeting, and they know something that every single one of us know. Water is powerful. Have you ever been over at the beach, and you go out, and it's about shin deep, and it's not that big a deal, but when you get out about waist deep, it doesn't matter how much you try to stand still, that water is moving you. Water is powerful. And they know this. They've been on water before. I remember as a kid growing up, I grew up in Texas, and we would often vacation, uh, my family, in southern Missouri in the Ozarks, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas. And there's a place there where we'd go called Roaring River, and it's actually a natural spring that comes up, and it creates this river, and the trout fishing is incredible. Now, here's what's, what, what you need to know. My, we went there because my dad loves to fish. My brothers love to fish. I hate fishing. The only way I like fishing is if you can guarantee me that every time my line hits the water, I'm going to catch something. But the idea of sitting out there for five or six hours just throwing that, no, no, that's, I will lose my dang mind. I, I, it's not relaxing to me. It's stressful. We're not accomplishing anything. Nothing's happening. I don't know what to do with myself. But so we would go there, and I wasn't a big fisherman, but right down the stream, there was an area where there was no fishing allowed, and you could wade out into it. It got, it got a little over waist deep out in the middle, about chest deep. But, but the current, depending on how much it had been raining and what else was happening, that current would be moving. And so you'd wade out in that water, and, and you'd be thinking, oh, it's only waist deep. Well, that's true if you're standing up. But if it knocks you over, waist deep is enough to drown you. You need to know that. And, and they would always say, be really careful in the stream, because there were these trees along the sides with branches hanging over full of snakes. Full of snakes. So the last thing you want to be doing is being knocked over in that water. I don't like snakes, never had. I think they're from the devil. In fact, there was that one time the devil got in one. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of snakes at all. And so if the current was too strong, I would get out of the water because water is powerful. They had dealt with water before. So buffeted by the waves, that, that's not just like, oh, there's a little water. No, that, that boat might be tipped over and you're going to be in trouble because there's a storm. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Shortly before dawn, biblical scholars believe this is around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. So think about this. He feeds everybody, Jesus does, tells the disciples, go ahead across the water, I'm going to dismiss everybody, goes up on a mountain to pray. This is hours and hours and hours later they've been battling this storm. Just like some of you feel like, man, it's, it's been a season of storm for a long time, and I'm growing weary. How much longer? Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now just imagine if you're in the boat. If you're in the boat and there's a storm and somebody comes walking on the water, if we're in a boat together and that ever happens, I'm guessing Jesus. Like there's historical precedent, I'm guessing Jesus. That's what I'm thinking. It's got to be Jesus or we're in trouble. Now notice what happens. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Because sometimes great things before we understand what they are, can terrify. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. 
Hey, sixes, the way you're wired, God has designed you beautifully as a loyalist. And you have some huge gifts we're going to talk about. But you also have a propensity toward fear. But not just sixes, really all of us. They cried out in fear, and in fear is how we often live. You think about it, whether you're reading online or turning on the TV, the evening news, they're just going to tell you a bunch of stuff that's going to scare the crap out of you. Like people are being shot, people are dying, houses are being robbed, coronavirus, we're all going to be out here in about two months, as we're all going to be dead. Like everything is just like, oh my gosh. Remember that? Like Ebola a few years ago and all the different things. Oh my gosh. We're and, and sixes, you especially, we're dead. If you're wearing red today, you're dead. There's nothing we can do. You're going to die. We, we spend so much of our time in fear. And part of that is because life has taught us. We've lived through some things. Your last marriage created a lot of fear. And now in this marriage, you see some things that you view as similar, and it's creating fear. You struggled as a kid, and now you're watching your kids struggle, and there's a fear. You met somebody, and you're not sure where it's going to go. You're not married, and you think maybe this is one, but there's, there's a fear. You've been hurt before. We spend so much of our lives in fear, and fear is debilitating. Fear will rob you of the you God created you to be. Fear will cause us to make stupid choices. They were in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. Now, this is interesting to me because courage is is not something that just accidentally happens. Courage, like happiness, has to be pursued. We have to be intentional if we're going to be courageous. You have to be intentional if you're going to be happy. Take courage means there's something you've got to do. It means you've got to shift your focus from fear, really, to who God is. The reality is if you're a follower of Christ, especially sixes, you need to lock this in. All of us need to understand this. If you're a follower of Jesus, the God that you love is bigger than anything you'll ever be afraid of. Our God is a big big God. He's not shocked by your questions. He's not disillusioned by your doubt. He understands exactly where you are, and he's capable to handle anything we're walking through. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, God, look at how well God knows us. Don't be afraid. Did you know between 360 and 365 times in the Bible, we find some form of that phrase? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Our God loves us and knows us so well. He knows that we're going to battle fear, and six is you battle it on a unique level. So if God says something one time, that's pretty important. It's God. If God says something 360, 365 times, that's probably a big deal that I need to wrap my mind around. And when I focus on who God is, it's easier to not be afraid. When I recognize the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside me as a follower of Christ, my God is way bigger than any issue I'll face. It's easier to not be afraid. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. Well, how can I take courage and not be afraid? It is I. It is I. Don't be afraid. The presence and the reality and the person of Jesus takes care of all fear. When we recognize who Jesus is, the reality of his presence in our lives, if you're not a Christ follower this morning, the ability to meet Jesus and know God in a personal way, it takes care of all fear. And notice what happens. We're going to find out about Peter, the sixth. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Can you imagine how many, how many of you have ever walked on the water? Raise your hand. Nobody? Really? Like, 
Have you ever seen anybody? Can you imagine if Instagram was around in that moment? Can you imagine TikTok? Oh, my gosh. It would have crashed it. Can, can you imagine? Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Now, in a moment, we're going to read in this story. And if you grew up in church and you've read your Bible, maybe you're familiar with this. If not, we're going to cover it. But Peter walks on the water and then he begins to sink. And, and in churches, often as Christ followers, we kind of bash Peter because he didn't have enough faith. But let me just ask you a question. How many disciples were in the boat? And how many got out? How many disciples were in the boat and how many said, Jesus, ask me to come to you? One. We, we tend to be kind of hard on Peter because he has these issues sometimes, but Peter's a guy who is all in and passionate about his faith. He is a loyalist. He's, he's loyal to Jesus, and he has moments that he blows it, but he's wired to be a loyalist, and he, he loves Jesus. And what he's really saying is, Jesus, I want to do what you do, which really is the heart cry of every Christ follower. I mean, don't we want to love the way Jesus loves? Wouldn't we love to be able to forgive the way Jesus forgives? Wouldn't we like to process decisions and, and function in relationships the way Jesus does with that kind of health? He, he's really saying, I want to do what you do. See, God has not called us to live an ordinary life. And one of the struggles as Christ followers is often we slide into a kind of stagnancy that everybody else lives in. And we miss what God has created for us to live in. We miss the life he's created for us. So we don't have amazing marriages. We have normal marriages which aren't working. We don't live in amazing parenting. We have normal parenting, which is often dysfunctional and inconsistent. We, we don't live blessed and in charge of our finances. We live being strangled financially and trying to figure out how to just get to the next check, which is what everybody else does. As followers of Jesus, one of the great tragedies is we often live far beneath our privilege, the privilege God gave us because he loved us and sent his son to die for us. God has not called us to live an ordinary life. So is your life ordinary? And if it is, maybe you want to pray a high-risk prayer that God will always answer and say, hey, Jesus, I want to be like you. Help me to love like you. Help me to forgive like you. Help me to make decisions like you. Help me to deal with my financial life the way you would. Help me to view my career the way you would. Do you think God would answer that kind of prayer? Oh, somebody's saying they want to be like me. Uh, let's kick it in gear. Let's do that for that person. So that's exactly what Jesus did. Come, get out of the boat. Come, walk, walk to me. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. When he saw the wind, it's easy to have faith when life's good. And it's easy to have faith when you're looking at who God is. It's when we take our eyes and our focus off of him that we get distracted. And when we stop looking at Jesus and who he is, and recognizing who he is, and we start looking at what we're facing and the problems we have to deal with or the questions we have. I have so many questions. I have far more questions now than I did when I was younger. In fact, you should have had me be your pastor when I was 22. I knew everything. I have so many more questions now than what I did, than what I did when I was younger. He saw the wind, was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out. You read what God says about marriage and you believe it's possible and then you look at your own marriage and you begin to sink. You read what God says about how to navigate a financial life and how he longs to bless us and then you look at your own finances and you begin to sink. You look at what God says about healthy relationships and friendships and how that can work in life to benefit each of us and we benefit each other and then you look at some of the friendships you have and you begin to sink. 
We look at life and what's happening around us, and it's very easy to begin to sink. But notice what Jesus does. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? You know what Jesus didn't do when Peter started sinking? Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You said, no, no, no. He doesn't lecture him. He rescues him. Because people that are drowning don't need to be told how they messed up. They need to be rescued. And so Jesus' position, if you're here this morning and you feel like, man, I've blown in some area, I'm drowning, I'm in over my head, I've messed up, Jesus is not offering a lecture to you this morning. He wants to rescue you. Now, when he rescues you, he will never leave you where he found you. He will take you somewhere better. And one of the things I do, I don't know if you do this, when I'm reading scripture, when I'm reading scripture, I picture in my mind what was happening. And I think about, okay, who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the one that willingly chose to die for you and for me and for our sin. He must love us more than anything we've ever known. And that kind of love, how would he say this? See, I picture Jesus rescuing, rescuing Peter, who's such a six. Man, I want to do it. I'm all in. Oh, no, I'm afraid. He rescues him. And then when I picture it, he's got a smile on his face like a loving father would have. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? You can do so much better. Let me help you with this. It's not a condemning question. It's a loving question. Because think about it. We focus on whether or not Peter had faith in Jesus, but I think the bigger question is, did Jesus have faith in Peter? And apparently he did because he said, come to me. You have so little faith. I think we would all hear that at times. But we hear that after we've been rescued. I remember years ago when the kids were little, we lived in North Carolina, and Angie took the kids to the community pool with a friend. So they were both taking their kids to the pool, and the, uh, our daughter Ashley needed to go to the restroom, and this lady, her, her daughter, needed to go to the restroom. So she said, I'll take him. You just stay here to Angie. You stay here and watch the rest of the kids. And so... She took him to the restroom. Well, this lady, in in all of her brilliance, I'm not going to tell you her name. She might live in Florida now, and I don't want to talk to her. In all of her brilliance, she decided when Ashley was done using the restroom, she'd stay in the restroom with her daughter, and she told Ashley to go back out to the pool. Now, Angie has no idea. She's watching the other kids at the other end of the pool. Has no idea. Ashley's running back out. And apparently, when you go to the bathroom, floaties have to come off. Apparently, that's something you do. And so if floaties don't go back on and you jump in the pool, you don't float anymore. If you don't know how to swim, you don't float. And so that's what happened. And by the way, this is kind of a, a public service announcement. Uh, uh, little children, parents, you need to watch your kids. They need to have floaties if they don't float. But also, um, that's going to happen again when we get older. <laughs> so for my kids, I hope they watch me when I'm older because I, I probably won't float. But Ashley is in the end of the pool, and there's some boys that, that rescued her and brought her to Angie. You know what I'm so glad they didn't do? Eh, she shouldn't have jumped in there like that. She should have put her floaties back on. She should, I'm so glad they didn't do that. Hey, we live in a culture of people that are drowning every day, and the last thing they need is another lecture about how bad they are and how much they've messed up. They just need to know Jesus loves them, that Jesus cares about them, that Jesus is concerned for them. You have so little faith. Here's the reality. What we choose to focus on will either enhance or shatter our faith. Hey, sixes, if you're six, you're like Peter. His eyes are on Jesus, and he has big faith. Ask me to come to you. 
But then when he takes his eyes off Jesus and whatever the storm is, that becomes his focus and it shatters his faith. What you feed grows and what you starve diminishes. And you and I have an opportunity in every situation we walk through to feed our faith and think about how big our God is or to completely focus on our problem. And, and it is shallow and short-sighted to focus on a problem that no matter what it is, is always going to be smaller than God. But when we lean into faith, we see how big God is. Now, here's what's interesting about faith, too. Faith is always faith when there's wind and waves. Faith is always faith when there's wind and waves. How much faith do you need to get in a boat when the water's calm? How much faith do you need to be in church this morning? You know when faith becomes real? Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday. Faith is always faith when there's wind and waves. Faith is the most valuable and faith does its best work when we have to lean into it because there's no other hope. Faith is something that is there not just when everything's good. Faith rises up the biggest when things are at their worst. Notice verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, this cracks me up. When they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. <laughs> think about this. I don't know how you think, but I look at this and I think, okay, right before this, Jesus feeds thousands of people with one little lunch and that didn't do it for you. It wasn't until this moment when the, the storm calms down that, oh, okay, it's okay. Maybe, maybe that's because the disciples knew when Jesus fed all those people, hey, we're with Jesus, we're going to be fine. We've seen the water to wine thing. We know what he can do. We're going to be fine. Send those people to get something else to eat. Jesus, you feed us. And if we're not careful as a church, we will have a propensity to think we're with Jesus. We're going to be fine. Who cares what happens to everybody else? But it was in the moment when they were in the storm and he rescued them that then they're saying, okay, you're God. I'm going to worship you. Now, if you're a six, I want you to notice your connection with Peter because this is incredible. Sixes, like Peter, you reflect God's faithfulness. If you're a six, you reflect the faithfulness of God. You are created and wired in such a beautiful way that you are, in your nature, faithful. You're a loyalist. You will be faithful in your friendships. You will be faithful in your relationships. You'll be faithful in your marriage. Now, all of us are broken. You might be a six that has moments where they weren't faithful. Remember, Peter denied Jesus how many times? But yet, he was there. He was present. And he's the guy. Here's the other thing. If you've blown it really bad, I mean, think about this. Peter's the guy that said, okay, I'm in, I'll do it. Ask me to get out of the boat and walk to you. And Jesus is like, come. And Peter starts walking and then he sinks. And then remember, Peter's also the guy that three times he denied Jesus. But he's also the guy, because of how loyal he was and how faithful he was, that God uses to launch the church on planet Earth. It was Peter. So no matter how bad you've blown it, the worst decision you've made, the thing you're the most ashamed of, does not disqualify you from being loved by God, called by God, or used by God. Your best days are still in front of you, no matter how bad your past days are. A six, you reflect the faithfulness of God. How faithful is a God who can take somebody as broken as Peter, and even though he's loyal, and even though he's faithful, he messes up. How faithful is a God that will choose to use him and inspire him and use him to reach thousands of people? Faithful God. Your motivation, if you're a six, is to be safe and avoid risk. 
<laughs> if you're a six, you don't like risk. I'm not talking about the board game. I'm talking about life. You, you don't like taking risk at all. You, you, you tend to sway toward playing it safe. You want to know the outcome. You can't stand thinking about the unknown. The fear of the unknown sometimes grips you. You, you just want everything to be the way it needs to be. You want safe. You want predictable. You don't want any risk. It's just who you are. But that's not life. There are going to be days of unknown. There are going to be question marks in life. There are going to be times that what you're facing might cause you to doubt. I'm so glad God loves me even when I doubt. I'm glad God loves us when we doubt or when we struggle. See, God has called you to great faith, but you will often feel great fear. As sixes, you're going to feel fear in certain circumstances, but you need to remember to lean into your faith. Because God has called you to great faith, and great faith doesn't really happen without great fear. How much faith do you need when everything's predictable? How much faith do you need when everything's going well? And you might be thinking, man, I, I hear that. Man, I, I want God to grow my faith. If you, if you want God to grow your faith, that's something you can pray for. But if you pray, God, please increase my faith, please don't pr- pray that when you're on an airplane flight. And please don't pray that if I'm on the flight with you, because what God might do on that flight to increase your faith, I don't want to be long for that ride. Wait till we get on the ground, then you pray for all the faith you want. But God will increase our faith. Isn't it true that often it's through the most difficult circumstances, through the most painful season, that God reveals how faithful he is, how much he loves us, and how much we can count on him? That's who God is. If you're a six, when you're healthy, you're reliable, you're dependable. You show up, you're on time, you do a good job, it's who you are. You're loyal. When you're healthy, you're loyal. Now let me say a word about loyalty. Loyalty is a rare commodity in our culture. Loyalty is rare. When you find people that are loyal, Mitch, I see you you and Tina sitting there. Mitch and Tina were a part of the church I used to pastor, and Mitch was one of the trustees. Now, Mitch, I don't know if you're a six or not, but man, your loyalty over the years, you're the only guy left. You're the guy, you and Tina, that, that helped make all of this happen. You're here today because of that couple in so many ways. Your loyalty has been profound. And it's certainly not because I've been perfect. You know me. It's because you love Jesus and you love his church and you've chosen in spite of me to love me and to love this church. And I'm deeply grateful. See, if if you're a six, your loyalty helps to build things. You're the kind of person that stays when everybody else walks out. You're trustworthy. If you're a six, you're trustworthy. You're honest. If you're a six and you tell a lie, it's on accident. The rest of us lie on purpose. But if you're a six and you tell a lie, it's on accident. You're you're, you're a trustworthy person. It's just who you are. It's how you're wired. You believe in honor. You believe in loyalty. You believe in being honest. You're compassionate. You're a six. You care about people on a deep level, which puts you in a kind of turmoil because people you're connected with, sometimes they risk things. Sometimes they do stupid things. Sometimes they make decisions that are not safe. And you feel that. And you're a good planner. Now, sometimes you plan because you're afraid. Okay, there's that 
there's that coronavirus thing. I need to wash my hand for 20 seconds. I need to make You know what a stat? It blows my mind how many men go to the bathroom in public restrooms and don't wash their hand. That's always blown my mind. I don't understand that. I don't, it, 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 if I walk up to you on a Sunday, guys, and I reach out to shake your hand, and you're not a hand washer after you go potty, don't shake my hand. Tell me you got a cold, say whatever you want to say, elbow bump, whatever. I don't want to shake your hand. I, it astounds me. And ladies, I know you don't want to hear this, but a lot of men just walk out of a bathroom and don't even wash their hands. I don't understand that. At least 20 seconds, public service announcement, 20 seconds, scalding hot water. I don't like hot. I have baby hands. I don't like hot. But you want to try to burn your freaking hands off for 20 seconds. That's what you need to do unless you want to get really sick and die. So make sure... 20 seconds, wash your hands, especially at church if you're around me. But if you're a six, if you're a six, you're a planner. And some of the planning comes from you, you have kind of a propensity for fear and to be afraid. But, but it causes you to plan because you want to be prepared. When you're healthy, you desire to see the world as a safer place. You want every ch- child wearing their helmet when they ride their bike. You want everybody driving on the right side of the road. You don't want anybody doing anything stupid. Use your blinker. Use your blinker if you're turning. Come to a full stop at a stop sign. You want the world to be a safer place. And turmoil in the world, because we live in a broken world. You feel that, and it concerns you in a deeper way than it might concern others. When you're unhealthy, sixes, when you're unhealthy, you see only potential risk and danger. You only see the risk and the danger. When you're unhealthy, you, you want to be safe in such a way that if there's an opportunity for a new career, new job, you shy away from that because of all of the potential risk. You, you can miss things God might want you to do. See, Peter, when he's in the boat, I, I think he's pretty healthy. He looks at Jesus and says, hey, let me ask me to come to you. Man, as a six, he's pushing a whole lot down to, to be healthy and say, man, I, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to do what you do. And then he slides to unhealthy when he stops looking at Jesus and starts looking at the storm. You see only potential risk and danger. And because of that, you live life in some ways, sometimes emotionally, often mentally, and it can be even spiritually paralyzed. Your fear limits you from being who God fully created you to be when you're functioning in an unhealthy way. Also, when you're unhealthy, life is dictated by fear and anxiety. You, you, you can live just afraid. Everything can be fearful. Your default position at any new opportunity or new situation, you're going to drift toward what you're afraid of about that opportunity or that situation and the anxiety that you feel because of if this happens. When you're unhealthy, you don't trust people. Six is it causes you to avoid new experiences and sabotage relationships. If you're a six and you've been hurt in relationships, you will exit your next relationship before they have a chance to hurt you. You'll sabotage your relationships. When you're unhealthy, you don't trust people. Now, let me say this. Whether you're a six, no matter what number you are, you should not trust everybody. You should love everybody, but you should not trust everybody. There are some people that should not be trusted. And so this doesn't mean if I'm saying a six is anybody, oh, just, just trust people, just trust people, just trust people. That's not what I'm saying at all. If I tell you that, there's going to be somebody that's going to sell you a whole bunch of land out in the lobby when the service is over, and you're going to write a check, and they don't even have it. Like, don't don't trust everybody. That's not what I'm saying. You trust people that are healthy. In my life, I want to trust people that love Jesus and love me and in that order. But when you're unhealthy, you don't trust anybody. You're overly skeptical. 
you think people always have an angle. They're always trying to get something out of you. And it causes you to avoid new experiences and sabotage relationships. You're hanging out with friends. You don't trust them. So you're not able to be fully there because you're a little bit disengaged. In the office, you don't trust people around you. Now, there are a couple of people that have proven they're untrustworthy maybe. But not everybody. Not everybody. Your core sin as a six is fear. It's fear. Which makes you all the more brave and courageous when you overcome it. The healthy loyalist is always in pursuit of courage and trusting God themselves and eventually others. The healthy loyalist is always in pursuit of courage. You recognize in a decision, in a circumstance, okay, I can give in to fear or I can lean into courage and trust God. And sometimes as a six, it's exceptionally hard for you to trust God because you feel like he's let you down before. Because there was your last marriage or your last job. Or, or the last financial situation you went through. There was that thing he allowed to happen with your kids. And you have a hard time trusting because you're afraid that God's going to let you down again because you view it as God letting you down. And it's hard to trust yourself because you know you. And it's hard for you to trust others. But when you're healthy, you're always in pursuit of courage and trusting God, yourself, and eventually others. For yourself, if you're a six, here's your verse, 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Sixes, you need to hear this. All of us need to hear it, but especially sixes. The Lord, my God, is with you. God is with you. God will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will not fail you. God has proven faithful over and over and over again. Don't look at a temporary moment in the span of eternity in a moment where you didn't like something that happened. Step back and look as best you can with the perspective of who God is, what God's doing, and what might God be doing to increase and grow your faith to impact other people around you in that circumstance. It is in the hardest moments of life that I've learned of the faithfulness of God on the deepest level. And without hard moments, it doesn't happen. When it comes to God, 6 is Psalm 91, 2. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. When it comes to others, 6 is Proverbs chapter 3. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Hey, please don't just read over that. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. You show me someone that is truly loyal and kind, and they become a people magnet, and they have intense influence, and their world changes. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. I want people around me that are loyal and kind. Now, kind doesn't mean you just agree with what everybody says around you. Hey, sixes, the rest of us say some stupid things. So sometimes kindness is in a compassionate and loving way that only you can to point out how stupid we are, but you're going to be nice about it. You're going to be kind about it because you're compassionate. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you because life will beat it out of you if you live in a fearful way as a six. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Do whatever it takes. Then you will find, notice, favor with both God and people, and you will earn a good reputation. I think one of the greatest things that could be said about somebody is you're loyal and you're kind. It's rare. So how do you love a six? Very quickly, if you're married to a six, you have a child that's a six, friend that's a six, 
maybe a parent that's a six. How do you love a six? First, tell the truth. Tell them the truth. When you damage the trust in a relationship with a six, it damages it on a unique level, and often it, it can be irreparable. You, you can't come back from it, or it takes a very long time. See, you may be saying something to a six that's a truth that they don't want to hear, but they'll respect you for telling them the truth. And remember, because they're loyal, they expect loyalty. When you lie to them, it damages the relationship at a very unique level. So if you love a six, tell them the truth. Now, sir, if she comes out of the room and she's a six and she says, how does this look on me? Maybe you don't want to tell, I don't know, that's between you and Jesus. But most of the time, tell the truth. I thought that was funny. How to love a six. Tell the truth. Also, thank them for their loyalty to you. Hey, hey, man, hey, hey ma'am, the way you're always there, the way you're consistent, I wonder how the world would change if we begin to thank everybody we felt thankful toward. We have so many thoughts of, man, I'm grateful for this person. I'm thankful for that person. I, 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 wonder, I, I was actually thinking this thought when I thought about Mitch and Tina. It does absolutely no good if I keep that inside me, and it translates not at all to them, but to express when you're thankful for somebody. Thank them for their loyalty to you. I'm blown away. She's not a six, but I'm blown away at the loyalty of my bride to me for 30, 32 years. 32 years. I think it's 32. I'm talking dating and marriage, so it gets confusing. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. Man, people that are loyal especially sixes, we need to thank them. Man, the, the way I was functioning, you didn't have to remain my friend. The, kind, the ways I was thinking, man, the, the fact that you stayed loyal and you kept praying for me and you kept being kind to me and you didn't give me the lecture. I mean, I, I bet Peter, when he was drowning, I bet he was really glad Jesus was not an unhealthy one. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have looked over. So you, should, you should have kept your eyes on me. I mean, thank you. Thank them for their loyalty. How do you love a six? Encourage them to be courageous. Parents, if you have a child that's a six, they're going to have a propensity toward being afraid and not trying new things. You want to be careful. You want to be loving. But you want to encourage them to be courageous. Now, I, I don't mean if they're four foot nothing and they want to play in the NBA. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm, I'm talking about in the areas where they're designed and created and they have a propensity or a gifting in a certain area. You want to encourage that. But encourage them to be who God created them to be, not who you want them to be. Encourage them to be courageous. Because the world would be a better place if we had more courageous people. You know what it takes courage to do? It takes courage to be kind to people that don't deserve it. It takes courage to forgive people that don't deserve it. It takes courage to love people that most would say are unlovable. How do you love a six? Fiercely support them when they're right. If they're right about something, support them. Parents, if you, you have a student or, or students, if you have a friend that's trying to live for Jesus on the campus and getting made fun of or mocked, man, stand with them. Fiercely support them when they're right because that will encourage them to continue to function in courage and not fear. How do you love a six? Lovingly correct them when they're paranoid. Hey, sixes, when you're functioning in an unhealthy way, you can be paranoid. You, you, you can have a list in your mind of all the bad things that are probably going to happen this week. And, and those of us that love you need to be able to correct you in a loving way. Hey, man, I know you think that, but 
Have you ever thought about the fact that the vast majority of the things we worry about never actually happen? And our God is bigger than any issue we're facing. And you can live your life in a way that you allow fear to speak to you, or you can live your life in a way that you speak to the Father and ask Him to increase your faith and overcome the fear that you're facing. And God's bigger every single time. And He offers us this unique peace. A peace that can live at the same address as pain, but the peace is always bigger and more profound than the pain. So lovingly correct them when they're paranoid. Here's the prayer. If you're a six, the prayer for a six. God, help me to be faithful to you. Help me to trust you even when it's hard to trust people. Help me to take courage every day. Help me to rest in your power and to trust in your goodness. Our God is a good God. It's a brand new day and a brand new week. And it does not matter what's happened in your past. Even God understands you cannot go back in time. You and I have a brand new opportunity this week to live in a way that honors God, where we love him, we love people. We take advantage of that and we recognize, God, you are a good God. The people that God has brought into your life, it is because of his goodness. People that encourage you, it's because God will sustain you through his spirit, often using people. People that are a discouragement to you, it may be because God wants to use you to reach them. It is the goodness of God that sets the stage for our lives every single week. And our good God, Sixes, he's designed you in a beautiful way where you're loyal and you're faithful and you reflect God's faithfulness and you make us all better. And without you, life would be extremely difficult. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the sixes in this room this morning. God, I pray as they walk through this week that they would lean into their faith, not their fear. That they would think about the ways they function and whether they're healthy or unhealthy. And you would use what we've talked about this morning to, to grow them. Grow them spiritually. Develop their personal growth. Grow them emotionally and mentally as we ask you to do every week with every number. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're six, maybe you're not. But as you sit here, you know the greatest need of your life is to know Jesus in a personal way. The idea of the spirit of the living God living inside you to forgive you of your sin and to walk with you through each day in this life, to give you wisdom, to give you peace, to help you enjoy day-to-day -day life. Man, that's who God is, the one who's uniquely gifted you and created you. He knows exactly how you're wired. And you and I have the opportunity to know him in a personal way. So if that's what you'd like to do this morning, you'd like to commit your life to Christ, you know that that's the next step in your spiritual journey. You need to commit your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus knows even our thoughts. So if you'd like to commit your life to Christ, just pray this prayer with me this morning. Say, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.